Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. To become a supporter, go to weirdhistorypodcast.com. To say that the Cold War was a bad time or a strange time is something of an understatement. During the Cold War, the United States made some often strange and, in retrospect, occasionally not great foreign policy decisions. Chiefly among them was the Vietnam War, also Cambodia, also Chile, and there was that one time when the United States of America, a liberal democracy, sold weapons to the Islamic Republic of Iran, a religious theocracy. You've probably heard of the Iran-Contra scandal. You might even remember it. But it's not something that gets a lot of attention anymore. In this series, we're going to take a multi-episode look at one of the strangest episodes of the 20th century and examine why anyone in the United States would think that supplying Iran, of all places, with weapons was a good idea. The Iran-Contra scandal is the Cold War in microcosm. We get a glimpse into how the 20th century's big standoff powered political decisions and amplified what could have been small regional conflicts. Civil wars, local politics, and things that could have just been confined to one country or area became matters of great geopolitical import when one or more sides identified with or accepted aid from either the United States or the Soviet Union. This is an affair that has proxy wars, revolutions, alliances of convenience, and plenty of cloak and dagger, often in the service of ill-defined and quixotic foreign policy goals. The other major conflict in the Iran-Contra affair is the ongoing push and pull between America's legislative and executive branch. The two branches are in tension with each other by design. However, America's constitutional framers imagined that the power struggle would be a kind of symbiotic dialectical balance. Ambition would check ambition, they thought. Neither one would get ahead of the other. However, Iran-Contra demonstrates one instance, a big instance, of how over several years the executive branch has been able to outmaneuver the legislative branch, especially when it comes to foreign policy. The presidency has been able to accrue more power and in many ways work around Congress and do what it wishes beyond the borders of the United States. Whether or not you think the original intent of the framers should be something we take into account when looking at the Constitution and looking at our current system of government is one matter. But I can say to you, with some degree of certainty, that the people who wrote the Constitution would probably be aghast with how little control the legislative branch, the Article I branch of government, now has over what America does beyond America's borders. And we're going to spend a lot of time on the American side of things, as this is an American scandal. We're also going to spend a lot of time in Iran. But I want to give you some context for all of this. It's not enough to say that Oliver North and company were supporting Nicaraguan rebel groups. So before we get to the U.S., and before we go to Iran, we're going to go to Nicaragua. We're going to talk about the conflict there, and why the U.S. 
cared about it. For much of the 20th century, Nicaragua was a militaristic dictatorship run by a single prominent family, the Somozas. The Somozas ran Nicaragua as a family business, and if you've ever worked for a family business, you know what that means. The business benefits the family. During the decades that they ran the place, from the 1930s until the end of the 1970s, Nicaragua was rife with corruption and dysfunction, all in the service of enriching the ruling Somozas. I can't really overemphasize how bad they were and how brazen they were in their corruption. The Somozas created and controlled monopolies stifling competition. They confiscated land from whoever they chose to confiscate it from. They defrauded foreign aid organizations, and they ended up owning about a quarter of Nicaragua's whole land area and ended up being worth millions upon millions of dollars because of it. They also, and I am not making this up, threw political dissidents into a literal volcano. Now, if that doesn't convince you that the Somozas were real-life supervillains, I don't know what will. However, a big part of their strategy for staying in power was making sure they maintained good relationships with both foreign governments and foreign corporations, specifically the neighboring superpower, the United States of America. The Somozas positioned themselves as bulwarks against communism, which made the U.S. government happy. They also put Nicaraguan land and labor at the disposal of foreign corporate and industrial interests, which made U.S. corporations happy. That made Somozan Nicaragua one of those embarrassing U.S. allies who didn't believe in things like democracy or political freedom or even free markets, really, as they were so monopolistic. But, hey, at least they weren't communist, and they were willing to accommodate American interests to prevent America from squishing their regime. FDR supposedly said of Anastasio Somoza Garcia, the first Somoza dictator of Nicaragua, that, quote, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch, unquote. However, repressive regimes that fritter away the resources of their countries, that allow foreign corporations to run roughshod over a place while the local economy stagnates, and throw dissidents into volcanoes, have a way of collecting opposition. And the regime had to deal with armed resistance going all the way back to the early 1960s. These rebels who fought the Somozas for several years had a name, the Sandinista National Liberation Front, also known as the FSLN, or simply the Sandinistas. The name, by the way, comes from Augusto Cesar Sandino, who was a Nicaraguan revolutionary active in the 1920s and 1930s, who led a rebellion against occupying American forces. He was killed in 1934 by Anastasio Somoza Garcia, the first Somoza president, the one FDR called, quote, our son of a bitch. And by the late 1970s, I want to note that the FSLN and other opposition to the Somoza family wasn't ideologically monolithic. You had many of the usual suspects you'd expect to find in a 20th century revolution, like college students and dedicated leftists. There were, of course, the Che Guevara-esque figures that wouldn't surprise you, 
but it also included a lot of ordinary Nicaraguans who weren't all that ideological other than just not wanting to live under a dictatorship anymore. Another major force in opposition to the Somoza regime was indigenous Nicaraguans. As you can probably imagine, a venal rent-seeking dictatorship did not care much for indigenous lands, culture, religion, or rights. So the Mosquito people, more on them in a moment, threw in their lot with the Sandinistas for much of the conflict against the Somoza regime. But that's not all. The Somoza regime faced opposition within and eventually without. In the 1970s, the Carter administration reversed U.S. policy on Somoza Nicaragua. Despite support by several previous U.S. presidents, Jimmy Carter had a dim view of the Somozas and decided, because of their human rights violations, that the U.S. no longer needed the services of our son of a bitch. And Carter effectively leaned on U.S. allies like Israel to stop selling weapons to the Somozan regime. The Somozan regime was suddenly without their northern sugar daddy. The major power that they had spent so much time and resources maintaining a good relationship with dropped them like a hot rock. And the flow of small arms that they needed to keep putting down Sandinista and indigenous rebels dried up. Meanwhile, the Sandinista forces were able to purchase weapons from supporters like the Soviet Union and Cuba. These countries were all too happy to export revolution and supply AK-47s to leftist rebels. You can probably guess what happened next. Faced with a shortage of materiel on his own side and an influx of it on the other, Anastasio Somoza de Bayale, the third Somoza to rule Nicaragua, fled to Miami in 1979. However, Jimmy Carter denied him entry into the U.S. Given the administration's past antipathy to his rule, you wonder why he even tried to go there. The last Somoza fled to Paraguay, where he would live out his days. But it turns out, those would not be very many days. In September of 1980, a covert Sandinista strike team assassinated him in what was known as Operation Reptile. And when I say assassinated, I don't mean they snuck into his house and shot him or stabbed him or did something all assassin ninja-like. No, they ambushed his car in Asuncion, Paraguay, and blasted it with several RPGs armed with anti-tank explosives. Then somehow they managed to fight their way out and escape. It had looked like a suicide mission, but six of the seven Sandinista operatives who killed Somoza got out alive. Somoza was dead, and so was his regime. The Sandinistas were the unchallenged government of Nicaragua. They immediately started in on a reform agenda, emphasizing education, literacy, and redistribution of land. The new government also promised to stay out of the Cold War. Even though they had accepted aid from the Soviet Union and Cuba, the FSLN promised the citizens of Nicaragua that they wouldn't take sides with either the Eastern Bloc or the Western Bloc during the Cold War. However, even though they had won, the FSLN still faced some resistance. The last Somoza dictator might have been reduced to a fine red mist on the streets of Asuncion, Paraguay, but the people who benefited from that regime, his old National Guard, were still around. 
Several of them had fled to nearby Honduras to form right-wing guerrilla groups aimed at toppling the new regime and re-establishing some semblance of the old one. Also, almost as soon as the FSLN took power, they began to butt heads with Nicaragua's indigenous population, the Mosquito people. Many of the Mosquito had joined a revolution to oust the Somoza regime, but after the smoke cleared, the FSLN and the Mosquito were almost immediately at loggerheads, particularly regarding the regime's policies on land and religion. In 1981, several indigenous leaders were arrested by the new regime for being counter-revolutionaries, and Mosquito fighters who'd been resisting Somoza turned right around and started fighting with the FSLN. Also in 1981, the CIA began giving aid to Somoza's old National Guard, now known as the Contras. There were also some indigenous fighters among the Contras, but more on that later. Native participation in the Contra movement is going to be really played up when the Reagan administration tries to sell a complicated, multifaceted conflict into a simple good guys, bad guys fight. And Native participation in the Contra movement is going to go a lot to sanitizing what the old National Guard really was when they sell it to American audiences. But more on that later. The point is that the FSLN suddenly faced U.S.-backed insurgents, and they turned to military aid from the most obvious place. The enemy of their enemy was their friend, so they started, once again, purchasing weapons from the Soviet Union. So much for non-alignment. At the same time, in the early 1980s, some leftist groups within the FSLN, after the government, started cozying up with the Soviet Union and Cuba. Soon the Nicaraguan government was getting attacked from all quarters. There were militaristic conservatives, indigenous activists, and dissident leftists all coming for them. But it was the old Somoza National Guard, the militaristic conservatives, who were getting American support. In 1984, the FSLN fulfilled one of their promises and held elections, with Daniel Ortega winning the presidency. We'll see more of this guy later on. In fact, as of this recording, on May 3rd, 2019, he is still president of Nicaragua. But for now, he's not yet the established leader who, after years in power, has become just as entrenched as the dictator he sought to replace. Right now, Ortega and the FSLN are newly in power and already trying to put down a right-wing rebellion. I've already mentioned some CIA intervention, but next episode, we're going to look into the American reaction to the end of the Somoza regime in detail, and to how the United States reacted to the Nicaraguan Revolution, and why some American officials resorted to backroom deals and cloak-and-dagger politics in order to interfere with a civil war in a Central American country. Until then, this is an independent, listener-supported podcast. There are no ads here, only you. Go to weirdhistorypodcast.com to become a supporter, and thank you to all of you who do so every month. Please go to Apple Podcasts and give the show ratings and reviews. The show is on Facebook, facebook.com slash weirdhistorypodcast. I am on Twitter, at Joe Streckert, at J-O-E-S-T-R-E-C-K-E-R-T. Thank you all for listening. Talk to you next time. Bye. Oh, 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 oh,